please open your copies of God's Word to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 12. The book of Revelation, chapter 12. And will you bow with me in prayer before we read this portion of God's Word? Our Father, we humble ourselves before your inerrant Word, and we ask that we will promptly and sincerely receive your Word and obey it, that we might be more conformed to the image of your Son, having worshipped together this morning and this evening, than before this day had come. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that your people will be strengthened for the battle in the recognition that Christ is King. And we pray that if there are those among us this evening who are lost and undone and strangers to grace, that even as your people have gathered to worship you on this Sabbath evening and we read together this 12th chapter and it is expounded, that someone might by your Spirit be effectually led to bow before the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Revelation chapter 12, this is the Word of God. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pangs and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war rose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short." And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman who was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness 
to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, a time, and a half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Will you please take special note of verse 11? And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Now, it is customary on Reformation Sunday that we focus upon justification by grace alone, through faith alone, through the work of Christ alone. And that is a theme preached very often from this pulpit. As a matter of fact, we believe that it's the very core of the gospel. If you were here Wednesday night, that's the theme that was preached. We preached from Galatians, the third chapter, and we were reminded once again that the curse was born by our substitute on the cross so that we might not bear that curse for ourselves. We need to remember how essential that doctrine is, and that according to the first chapter of the book of Galatians, those who preach any other gospel than that which the Apostle Paul gave by divine revelation, that God gave to him and that he spoke of in that book, is to be considered anathema. That is, to be, they are to be worthy of being doomed. Tonight, however, I want to dwell on another theme as we look at Reformation Sunday, and that is the theme of martyrdom. When we think of the Reformation, this certainly comes to mind. The 16th century was a time of magnificent faithfulness, often leading to the martyrdom of God's people for the sake of His truth. And yet, as we consider it, there are more martyrs or have been more martyrs in the 20th century and leading into the 21st than in all other centuries put together. There have been more martyrs in the 20th century than in all of the vast sweep of church history since the first century A.D. In the 20th century, Mao Zedong, for example, killed more Christians than Hitler killed Jews. Now, as I mentioned that, I wonder if you feel frightened. When thinking of martyrdom, does fear come into your heart and into your mind? That Christians are persecuted in the world, that Christians are giving their lives, that they're being imprisoned in Iran and other places. And I wonder if there is a sense of foreboding because we do see in the Western world and even in our own country an escalation of persecution of Christians and of the church. Well, of course, there's natural apprehension. None of us likes the idea of being put in prison or burned at the stake. Who wants to be a martyr in that sense? But Scripture teaches us not to be dominated by fear. Martyrs, according to the Bible, martyrs overcome. Martyrs are protected by God. And the day is coming when the persecutors shall be afraid as they stand before the King of kings and Lord of lords on the day of judgment. Jesus said, Fear not him who is able to kill the body, but him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. And that is why we have turned to this admittedly difficult text tonight. So follow with me and keep these things in mind. 
The first thing that we see as we come to this 12th chapter, and our focus is on verses 7 through 12, but nonetheless we need the broad sweep of the chapter. The first thing that we see is this. The Lord fights for his persecuted people. The Lord fights for his persecuted people. And in verses 7 through 12 in particular, we have a symbolic picture of history from the ascension of Christ to the return of Christ. The warfare is described in this chapter to us as something that is mighty indeed. The warfare is depicted in these chapters 12, 13, and 14 during the entire age from the ascension of Christ to the return of Christ as a warfare against the people of God. Against the Lord are Satan, who is the dragon in this passage, the beast, and the false prophet. With the Lord are God's people, symbolized by a light-bearing woman and a numbered chaste people in chapter 14. These chapters exhort the people of God to be faithful in the midst of persecution by the beast. For example, in chapter 13, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. The nature of our warfare, according to Paul the Apostle in Ephesians 6, is this. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. And so we have this great sweeping panorama, this symbolic picture of the persecution of the people of God in this age between the ascension and Jesus coming again. The woman and the dragon, focused upon in these first six verses. The woman in brilliant light, the Old and New Testament saints. We know it includes the New Testament saints because we are told so in verses 13 through 17. She is opposed by the hideous dragon identified in verse 9 as the devil himself. The dragon's tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth, the text says. So the devil attacks heaven itself. He would, if he could, remove the sovereign from his very throne. So does he hate God and his son. He attacks the male child to whom the woman gives birth, attempting to destroy him as soon as he is born, we are told, which of course happened when Herod murdered the babies, according to Matthew 2. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, we read, And the Lord looks after the woman, representative of the people of God, for 1,260 days, a time already referenced in chapter 11 to indicate a limited time under the control of God, whereby the people of God will be persecuted. The church is protected by God in the desert, like Israel, which fled idolatry in the desert, but also found rest while finding trial. The symbolic history of the dragon's defeat is found in verses 7 through 12. There is the birth of the woman's seed, who is Christ, the one who will rule all nations with a rod of iron, we are told in the text. We are told in the text that he is exalted to the throne, and this is the turning point of the battle that is in heaven. Christ's exaltation is the the decisive issue. He won on the cross as our king, rose victoriously from the grave, ascended on high, and that's the end 
of Satan's kingdom in any ultimate sense. The Westminster Confession 26 summarizes well for us the theme of this passage. How doth Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executeth the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Michael joins the battle against the dragon and his angels, and the dragon is helpless due to the victory of Jesus Christ. There is no place for the dragon in heaven. Now, what is God telling us, his people, as we gather here on this Sunday evening? What is he saying to us in this symbolic picture of the persecution of the church and the victory of the Lamb? Well, he's saying several things to us. First of all, he is saying that Satan is removed from his position as prosecutor. You remember how in the book of Job, and again in Zechariah chapter 3, that Satan comes to prosecute the people of God, to accuse the brethren. Well, he is removed from that position as prosecutor. We are being told that Satan's accusations have lost their sting, and surely here is the nature of the spiritual battle in heaven. What can that mean? After all, we're dealing with spirits. They're not going to be casting spears into each other. They're not, they're not possessing material bodies. What kind of warfare was this? Well, undoubtedly, because Satan was the accuser of the brethren, we should imagine it as something like this. The devil saying before the throne of God, they're sinners. Those people down there, your church, they're sinners. And Michael responds on the basis of the work of Christ, ah, but they're righteous. The righteousness of Christ has been imputed to them and received by faith alone. The devil says, they are fallen in Adam. But Michael, in spiritual power, responds, they have been saved by the last Adam. The devil who accuses the brethren and says, they must go to hell because they are sinners. And Michael responding, they must go to heaven because Christ bore their hell for them in their place. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is Christ who died. It is Christ who justifies. And that Satan has been overwhelmed by what Christ has done, by the blood of the Lamb, as verse 11 tells us, is indicated in this loud voice in heaven that praises God that Christ is victorious over the devil. We find that in verses 10 through 12. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have overcome him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Jesus said when he went to the cross, now is the prince of this world cast out. And so Satan and his kingdom in principle have already found ruination through the cross, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven. 
Now I wonder as you hear this text tonight, if this seems so foreign to you because of the symbolic language, that it's very difficult for you to get your heart into it, for your affections to be, to be stirred up to the Lord in praise because of it. Let me tell you something. If you were reading this in the first century A.D., or the second, or the third, or the fourth, and you were actually receiving at the hand of Decius or Domitian the persecution that Christians received, when you heard that the accuser of the brethren had been cast down, that there is a limited time in which persecution will take place, that through the ascension work of Christ the victory had been accomplished, this chapter would take on a totally different meaning for you. And one of the reasons that this chapter does not speak so deeply to our own souls, it's not because the chapter is in any way wanting. It's because we in the United States of America have had a hiatus. We have actually lived with such blessing from the hand of the Lord that we have not known persecution. And this book will become dear to the people of God all around the world who are enduring severe persecution for the cause of God and truth. For what is God saying to us in this chapter after all? Is it not this, and through the whole book for that matter, is he not reminding us that the Lord controls history, and that as he controls history, he has a purpose and plan for his people, and that the control of history of our sovereign Jesus Christ includes also the devil? How often do we see this in Daniel, as we have looked at it on Wednesday evenings? That God is Lord even when we do not see Him at work. That history is the scaffolding that God uses to build His temple. It's the scaffolding. History is the scaffolding, not the building. And that history is not the building, but the scaffolding. And one day the scaffolding will no longer be needed. And then the scaffolding will come down, but God's building will stand. That's what God is doing in history now. He is building His church. He is building His temple. He is building His building. And history is simply the scaffolding that the Lord is using to bring about the salvation and the perseverance of His people. It is hard to develop and maintain a Christian mind, isn't it? And often we do not see God at work. And often we can live as practical deists, as if God is not involved with His world. But God is at work, and Christ is the King, and He is on His throne, and He is sovereign, and He has promised the defeat of the Antichrist. What the book of Revelation says, whether we understand all of its symbolism or not, is that Christ has won, and that you, His people, win too. Do you believe that to be true? The text then is an affirmation of the kingly office of Christ, and I'll not repeat the morning sermon, which was all about the kingly office of Christ. But we first see that the Lord fights for his persecuted people. That's the first thing we see in the text. And the remainder of the chapter shows that the Lord will protect his people, while chapter 13 affirms that the beast and the false prophet will persecute the church, but that God is in control of that also. Second thing we see is that the Lord provides for his persecuted people. God provides for his persecuted people. He gives them the means for overcoming. 
And what are the means for overcoming? We see it in verse 11. And they overcame or conquered. And they overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives even unto death. Now really, it's because of the blood. It uses the little preposition dia in the Greek New Testament. And what that means essentially is the ground of the victory is stressed as the means of the victory. He's saying the ground of your victory is the blood of Christ. And because the ground of your victory is the blood of Christ, the means of your victory also is the blood of Christ. This is what has conquered. This is what has conquered Satan and so makes your victory possible. And they overcame these martyrs, these persecuted people of God, the church, overcame through the entirety of the age between the ascension of Christ and His return. That's what it means. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb. Now let's focus there for a few minutes. The blood of Christ. Let's think upon it. The blood of Christ was the ransom price planned by God from eternity past as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in concert determined that the Father would choose a people, the Son would shed His blood for that people, that the Holy Spirit would draw that people and apply the gospel of Christ to their hearts. It was the blood of the spotless Lamb through which they conquered. Hebrews 9.14, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? It is the blood that ransoms. It is the blood that frees from guilt. It is the blood that frees from the dominion of sin in our lives. It is the blood that seals the covenant of grace so that in Hebrews 13 it references the blood of the everlasting covenant. It is the blood that preserves God's people. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. It is the blood that sanctifies our hearts. It is the blood of Christ that cleanses from all sin. It is the blood of Christ that satisfied the wrath of God in our place, redeems from the curse of the law, reconciles to God, continually cleanses from sin, and prevails in heaven for us, even now through our great ascended high priest, Jesus Christ of whom we read in Hebrews 9, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. It's the blood of Christ, my friends, through which God's people overcome in this world. Spurgeon somewhere said that the blood of Christ, the wounds of Jesus The wounds of Jesus are so many mouths that plead for sinners. Doors of grace through which divine love comes. And all of the wounds of our sacred Savior plead for you effectually before the throne of grace tonight. So that yes, in God's permission, a state might kill the body of this martyr, but this martyr can never die, but has life everlasting in Christ. And it is through the blood of the Lamb that we overcome in daily living. It is through the blood of the Lamb that the martyrs overcome. So that's first. 
How did the martyrs in the first century, second, third, fourth, how do the martyrs in various parts of the world overcome now? It's through the blood of the Lamb, through the victory of our Savior Jesus, who pleads before the throne of grace, His wounds, and His substitutionary atonement for us. But that's not all that the text says. They overcame through the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. That's in verse 11, the word of their testimony. What does this mean? It means that the church is called to proclaim Christ. That's what it means. That we are an overcoming church when we send missionaries such as the Partagons and Flavian preaches the gospel of sovereign free grace to Muslims. That as we stand in this pulpit, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, and we proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ, we are overcoming through the word of our testimony. It is a word of testimony to the Lamb and to His shed blood. It is a word and testimony of the removal of guilt. It is a word and testimony of the sound of a a changed life. It is a word and testimony to the sovereignty of God in history as God saves His elect and not one of them will perish from His hand. The overcoming witness is about the blood, the blood of the Lamb that saves us from our sins, and that is the blood of our sovereign, priest, king. It's the proclamation of the Word of God. Now this is Reformation Sunday, and I want to illustrate it. So let me give to you an illustration of the power of Christian witness and proclamation in the midst of persecution. Some of you are just only now really becoming familiar with the Belgic Confession. Some of you are reading that great little children's book that relates to it. Some of you are reading the three forms of unity. Uh, The Belgic Confession was written by Guido de Bray. And he was a student of Calvin and of Calvin's successor, Theodore Beza. In 1565, de Bray was arrested for his Calvinistic convictions. He was tried before the Spanish Inquisition and received the death penalty and was hanged. He died a martyr's death in front of a large crowd, having made a final statement of his faith. And as he was confessing his faith, he was pushed off the scaffolding by the hangman as he addressed the crowd. And Twelve days before his death, he wrote what was at the time of his death a still circulating letter. He wrote a letter to his dear wife. What would a man, a preacher of the gospel, who was about to die in his prison cell, write to his wife and for others of the faith to read? What would he write? Well, let me give you some snippets of a very long letter. Guido de Bray wrote, The grace and mercy of our God and Heavenly Father and the love of His Son and our Savior Jesus Christ be with you, dearly beloved. Catherine Ramon, my dear and beloved wife and sister in our Lord Jesus Christ, your anguish and sadness disturb somewhat my joy and the happiness of my heart. So I am writing this for the consolation of both of us and especially for your consolation. Since you have always loved me with an ardent affection 
and because it pleases the Lord to separate us from each other. He goes on. Now remember that I did not fall into the hands of my enemies by mere chance, but through the providence of my God who controls and governs all things, the least as well as the greatest. This is shown by the words of Christ. Be not afraid, your very hairs are numbered. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? Are not one of them, and not one of them shall fall to the ground without the will of your Father? Then fear nothing, you are more excellent than many sparrows. These words of divine wisdom say that God knows the number of my hairs. How then can harm come to me without the command and providence of God? It could not happen unless one should say that God is no longer God. This is why the prophet says that there is no affliction in the city that the Lord has not willed. A little later in the letter, I pray you, my dearly beloved, to console yourself with meditation on these things. Consider the honor that God has done you in giving you a husband who was not only a minister of the Son of God, but so esteemed of God that he allowed him to have the crown of martyrs. It is an honor the like of which God has never even given to angels. I am happy. My heart is light, and it lacks nothing in my afflictions. I am so filled with the abundance of the richness of my God that I have enough for me and all those to whom I can speak. So I pray, my God, that he will continue his kindness to me, his prisoner. The one in whom I have trusted will do it, for I have found by experience that he will never leave those who have trusted in him. I would never have thought that God would have been so kind to such a poor creature as I. I feel the faithfulness of my Lord Jesus Christ. I am practicing now what I have preached to others. Now, do you see? He overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of his testimony and did not love his life even unto death. Now we've seen that the Lord fights for his persecuted people. We have seen that the Lord provides for his persecuted people. But there's one other thing to see. Thirdly, the Lord protects his persecuted people. In persecution, He protects His church and keeps us from extinction. I remind you again of the Belgic Confession. This church hath been from the beginning of the world and will be to the end thereof, which is evident from this, that Christ is an eternal King, which without subjects He cannot be. And this holy church is preserved or supported by God against the rage of the whole world though she sometimes for a while appears very small and in the eyes of men to be reduced to nothing, as during the perilous reign of Ahab, when nevertheless the Lord reserved unto him seven thousand men who had not bowed their knees to Baal. He will protect his people. In a way that the world cannot understand, he protects his people. But every one of us, every child of God will understand. How does he protect his people? And they overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives even unto death. 
Do you see it? How does he protect us as people when our bodies are destroyed, when states rise up against the church, when we're burned at the stake? He protects his people by delivering us from self-love. And they overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives, even unto death. He delivers his people by delivering us from this overweening love of self that dominates every child of Adam. Not self-love, but Christ's love dominates the Christian's heart. Love for the truth. Love for God's Word. Love for the beauty of the Savior. Love for others. Love for our souls. Love for God's glory. And it's not only our love to Christ, but our love to Christ is but a return of His everlasting love for His own people. Reformation Sunday. We need an illustration of loving not our lives even unto death. So let me give you another. You know of the five of Lyon? For some reason we're in France tonight, in Belgium, with Guido Debray. These five young men, reformed students, some of you high school students, maybe high school graduates, they were about your age. Five of them, five young men. Reformed students, they teach us how to face the future, these young men. They studied in Switzerland. They wanted to go back to France to teach the way of life. But these fresh graduates in April 1552 became prisoners because of their adherence to the Reformed faith. Calvin wrote them a letter encouraging them. And then they suffered for a year in a Paris dungeon and were returned to Lyon to be executed. And then they exchanged letters with Calvin. Would you like to listen in and hear just a little bit of the letters that they exchanged? Would you? We want you to know, they wrote to Calvin, that although our body is so confined here between four walls, yet our spirit has never been so free and so comforted. They went on to say, We are so far indeed from wishing to regard our affliction as a curse of God as the world and the flesh wish to regard it, that we regard it as the greatest blessing that has ever come upon us. They go on. These five graduates say to Calvin, We are bold to say and affirm that we shall derive more profit in this school for our salvation than has ever been the case in any place where we have studied. We testify that this persecution in prison is the true school of the children of God, in which they learn more than the disciples of the philosophers ever did in their universities. Indeed, it must not be imagined that one can have a true understanding of many of the passages of Scripture without having been instructed by the teacher of all truth in this college prison. And then Calvin writes them back, Your chains have become so renowned, and the noise of your imprisonment has been spread everywhere abroad, that it must be that despite Satan, your death will resound far more powerfully so that the name of our Lord may be magnified thereby. For let the enemies do their utmost, 
they shall never be able to bury out of sight that light which God has made shine in you, in order that many may contemplate it from afar. And all five were put to death and went into the presence of the Lord who bought them with his blood and will be raised on the last day. And on that great day of judgment will stand before the Lord whom they served and their persecutors will be judged forever. Well, let's bring it to a conclusion. We must see that persecution, according to the Bible, is the lot of Christ's church until Christ comes again. Under Diocletian, persecution began in the year 303. An edict demanding that church buildings be destroyed, that all copies of the scripture be burned, Christians lost their civil status. Imagine that, waking up one morning, and as a Christian, you've lost all citizenship, all civil status. The protection of the law removed. Then an edict was issued against church leaders. Then another was an invitation to recant. Then another edict that decreed the death of all Christians. Roland Bainton says the roster of martyrs was so swollen that the days of the year no longer suffice for their commemoration. And the persecution lasted from 303 to 324. Is persecution coming? The way in which it is so obviously happening already in our country is through the facade of tolerance. (laughs) You see, you Christians are just so intolerant. You are just so intolerant, believing that Christ only is the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, Believing that uh, marriage is between one man and one woman, you Christians, you're just so intolerant. And so there is already happening the marginalization of the church. Some of you know that even now, Christians, Christian employers, Christian schools, and churches will face it too, that we're already having to face this health and human services mandate in which the government says, even against your conscience, you must provide abortion-causing drugs for your employees. And right now there is lawsuit after lawsuit and the government is not listening. Now, I don't know the future, only the Lord does, but can't you see how the seed of persecution is being planted through such things? And how the church is being marginalized? So let me give to you These thoughts about how we can be prepared. How can we be prepared? First, overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of His testimony now. Don't wait till then. Do you know how to appeal to the blood of Christ as the overcoming weapon in your life now? When you are accused, do you plead the blood When you are tempted, do you run to Christ's blood? When you are persecuted, do you go to the blood? When you are exhausted, do you go to the blood? 
The battlefield is in the heavenlies. How do we have access to God? Through the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God, who has taken away the sin of the world. The all-sufficient blood of Christ shed for his elect. Overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of your testimony now. Secondly, we are prepared for persecution in the church today by sympathizing with present martyrs. Do you see why so often in our morning sermon, one of the pastors or elders very frequently prays for the people of God being persecuted in various parts of the world? We often go to the voice of the martyrs, we find details, and we bring it into the pulpit, and we pray. Why? Because we are a part of the people of God through all of the ages and the people of God throughout the world, and we should have empathetic hearts toward those who are suffering for the cause of God and truth. We are prepared when our hearts are into praying for our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted for their faith. You are also prepared when you garner strength from past martyrs, as we have done tonight. I hope that it strengthens you rather than discourages you to learn of Guido de Bray or the Five of Lyon. We are strengthened in our stand for Christ. Know your history, people of God. Americans just, Americans think we're the only Christians that have ever walked on the face of the globe. Slight overstatement. We, we have to throw out ancient worship. We have to replace it with pop culture. We just don't understand history. You need to know your history. It needs to inform your living. Your understanding of the truth, your understanding of the Bible. And it will strengthen you, my friend, if you begin to understand something of the history of the church. Take courage, brothers and sisters. The battle will not be long. And you can, by the grace of God, endure and stand for Jesus. And then, another way in which you and I prepare, and I think this is the most important thing of all, And children, I especially want you to hear, children, young people, you will prepare, if God and His providence brings upon us persecution, you will prepare for that big event then by making small, small, fateful decisions now. Take Daniel and Daniel's three friends. Do you think that when Daniel first was faced with making this big decision about eating the king's meat, or when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were first faced with what they would do when they would not worship the image but were thrown into the fiery furnace. Do you think that this was the first time they'd ever made such decisions? No, obviously not. Obviously, they had been faithful to God in many small ways before they were faced with this really, really big thing in life. And so you and I prepare now to give greater witness by bearing witness in smaller ways in our own present circumstances today. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is very important. Do you get it? You'll be prepared for the big by being faithful in the small. And you prepare now to give greater glory to God by glorifying God in smaller things now. Once again, what we find in this text is a clear-cut call 
to clear-cut discipleship and holy living for Jesus. And then finally, never forget for a moment that Christ is King, that He rules, that He reigns, that He will return in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel, but will be glorified in His saints. Learn that He will utterly destroy the enemies of His people. Now let us rejoice in this truth on this Reformation Sunday that no one can take from us. Rejoice that you can answer the question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with His precious blood hath fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil. And so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. All things, including persecution, must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready, henceforth, to live Unto him. And God's people said, Amen.